Snapchat. Malcolm Turnbull announced that the laws of mouth do not apply here. <laughs> One of my favourite brands of comedy area is brown people and black people making fun of white people. Senators have been dropping like flies recently. Shouting out the fact that in the Knowles Carter family, women just have one name. Backchat on FBI Radio. Hello and welcome to Backchat, the freshest wrap of news and current affairs on the radio. I'm Ariel Bogle. And I'm Osman Faruqi. And we're joined today by a very special guest, Madison Connaughton. She's an editor at Vice. Hey, welcome. How are you going? Hey. So I'm so glad you're here. Finally, we outnumber Oz in the studio, women versus men. Like you say outnumber as though there's like multiple of me. And one, <laughs> there's one of me, there's one of you. Our entire producing team is women, has been for a very long time. I'm very mm-hmm. proud of it. But nevertheless, I feel like this is a, you know, a strike a blow for feminism, honestly. In, in the week of International Women's Day as well. That's right. Did you have a good International Women's Day week? Yeah, of course. Um, it was, um, I mean, I guess my favourite part of it, of course, was Tony Abbott raising his um, <laughs> raising his head during this week where we're celebrating women. Um, yeah, it was, it was great to hear from him, hear his opinion. Yeah, he does show up in the oddest places giving, you know, really interesting opinions. I think we have a grab of that. Look, once you start having these sorts of exemptions, where does it end? Where does it end? Uh, we've got to broaden the tax base, not start uh, carving out politically correct uh, exceptions. Hmm. That's the the one thing Australia was missing on International Women's Day was Tony Abbott's take on the tampon tax. I just don't understand the idea of like political correctness being the wrong thing to do with <laughs> politics. Like, I just think that that's the one industry where it's like okay to be politically correct. yeah like it's it's politically correct like literally right the like it's it's the right thing to do um but that, that debate kicked off because tanya plibersek the labor deputy leader was asked about um the the gst on tampons during her national press club address uh, and said that labor would look into it and for some reason some journalists decided tony abbott was a person to ask <laughs> right. about and speaking of white guy old white men oh feel so bad. <laughs> I, know, I know and love some great white men, old white men, but nevertheless, um, they did some interesting things this week. One was um, Australia's, you know, number one ex-golfer, Greg Speaking Norman. Of great white, right? Because they used to call him the shark. I know, I know, right. the, the great white old man shark. No. <laughs> anyway, he's basically <laughs> Australia's um, most important uh, foreign policy weapon. He was deployed this week by Julie Bishop because, of tr- course, you might have heard that Donald Trump wants a trade war. He wants to impose steel tariffs on a whole range of countries, and it's not quite clear yet whether Australia will get an exemption from that. And they called in the big guns, and that is Greg Norman. Yeah, Julie Bishop confirmed. So so what happened was, if you remember, Malcolm Turnbull went to the US a couple of weeks ago, and he met with Donald Trump, and he was trying to get Australia exempted from these new tariffs that had been rumoured for a while. He, he kind of didn't really succeed much. Um, Donald Trump, when he announced the, the tariffs, didn't indicate that he was going to exempt any countries. Since then, he's announced the detail of the policy in uh, Canada and Mexico are exempt. And apparently there's 15 days for America's other allies to negotiate exemptions. But we're not having much luck getting in touch with Donald Trump. So Julie Bishop has called in Greg Norman. He's asked him to lobby Donald Trump on Australia's behalf. And it's not the first time he's been used in this way. When Donald Trump was first elected president, We did not have his mobile number. (laughs) Malcolm Turnbull tried to get in touch with him um, and needed Donald, needed Greg Norman basically to pass on the number. And I guess that leaves Joe Hockey, Australia's ambassador to the United States, looking maybe a bit dumb. 
Yeah, it's pretty weird. I feel like those roles, the ambassadorship to Washington, D.C. and the one to London are sort of ceremonial. You might remember George Brandis, our ex-Attorney General of Australia, has the UK one now. And, you know, what is Joe Hockey doing over there, except going to basketball games, according to his Instagram? Do you guys follow him on Instagram or Twitter? Like, it's (laughs) the most... It's actually pretty lit. Like, he just posts really fun activities, but it makes me really angry because he's, like, the ambassador to the US, so he should be... Like, I don't know how much I buy into international diplomacy generally as a concept, but, like, in these instances, there's a trade war going on. It's, like, the time you do want your ambassador to get in the thick of it and or do have, stuff. Or have someone in the White House's phone number. Literally least. someone he can call up. But, no, Joe Hockey's, like, yeah, playing basketball, playing baseball, taking selfies with celebs, going to the Oscars or whatever. I don't think he went to the Oscars. I shouldn't just make stuff up. Um, <laughs> while Greg Norman is doing all the hard work. His favourite film was Three Billboards. Did he say that? <laughs> it would be. Let's, it would be, yeah. wouldn't it? Let's stop making it. The racist film. Joe yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm, I, uh, Joe Hockey has, has blocked me on Twitter. So I feel completely comfortable going in on him. Um, Why I, did he block you? I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even do? know. I don't know what I did. I might have dragged him for something. Um, I can't remember what it was. But on, like on a personal level, sorry to make it about m- me, um, if I'm in the United States and something bad happens to me, oh, I lose my passport, or the person whose job it is to look after me is the ambassador of Australia, right? Isn't that why we have embassies? Exactly. One one good reason. One good reason to have embassies. But the ambassador's blocked me on Twitter. Yeah. It indicates he's not really that interested or concerned about me, some would say. Yeah, well, I think it's a sort of a free speech issue that, um, <laughs> <laughs> that you know, you have no... How are you meant to know the state of American-Australian relations when why you can't, can't even, see the tweets of the Oh, yeah, why well, can't even at him, right? Like, yeah. if I'm in some sort of strife and all I can do is tweet, and I'm like, at Joe Hockey, save me. He, he's not going to see it because he's blocked me. Um, but look, taking us back to um, the, the Greg Norman situation for a second, Madison, I've heard that you're a pretty keen golfer and Greg Norman's a pretty keen golfer. What, what, what kind of skills do you learn in golfing you reckon might be helpful That's, in this kind of situation? That was off the record. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I just think that obviously Joe Hockey is spending so much time at basketball games and he should just be playing golf because that seems to be the way to, <laughs> totally. to, to get FaceTime with Trump, right? Yeah. But the other thing is like, you know, we're laughing about this. Is this like a diplomatic masterstroke by Julie Bishop? Like, <gasps> oh, good pun, you know by I the mean? way. Good like, pun. She, <laughs> no, yeah. Is this a hole in one? <laughs> no, um, but like, is this what happens in politics all the time? Like these backroom deals, like using emissaries that the the politician actually wants to see and talk to. Whereas, like, does anyone want to hang out with Joe Hockey? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually. Sure his when you, wife does. When you put it that way, it's actually, it does sound pretty smart, doesn't it? It's like Donald Trump is friends with this guy, Greg Norman, because they go golfing together. And if you want stuff done, and particularly with a character like Trump, it seems to make sense to, you know, play to someone who he knows, likes, and hangs out with rather than Joe Hockey. Like, who is Joe Hockey? Does Donald Trump even know who Joe Hockey is? One thing last time. Yeah. Why, why not again? And one thing's clear about Trump is that he definitely responds to celebrity above anything else. Yeah, do you reckon, like, is Greg Norman still a celeb, do you think? Like, that where is he? on the yeah. yeah, In Trump's heart. In Trump's heart, probably, yeah. Trump's like, I see myself in you. Um, so, the, the, the US steel tariffs are one part of a big global debate happening around trade policy at the moment. You might remember the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was being negotiated over the last couple of years. It was a big global trade deal uh, that included, I think, over a dozen countries, including the United States. Um, but it all fell apart when Donald Trump was elected. He 
spiked it. He did not like free trade. He's railed against it during his campaign and he knocked the TPP on its head. But the trade policy has lingered. And over the past couple of weeks, while we were all occupied with the Barnaby Joyce scandal and various you know, citizenship cluster Fs in Canberra, <laughs> uh, the Australian government was secretly negotiating basically round two of the TPP. They call it the CPTPP and it's being led by the New Zealand government. CP stands for Comprehensive and Progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I'm calling the Woke TPP, because it doesn't include the US and it's supposed to be a bit less cooked in terms of some of the provisions. And um, but, but one of the things that it still retains, which was one of the most, I guess, one of the things in the original TPP that got uh, people really worked up, is this clause called ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement Clauses, which basically would allow big corporations to sue the government or sue any government that signs the deal for passing laws that might negatively impact their business interests. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? So you might remember um, Australia is, you know, really a leading force on um, cracking down on smoking in various innovative ways, and we pioneered the idea of plain packaging. And Australia as a country was actually taken to trade court um, by some of the cigarette manufacturers over this. It dragged on for years. Um, Australia did eventually win, but nevertheless, a lot of... um, you know, academics and um, public health advocates are really worried about this provision because it could really stymie um, countries' efforts to do what's in the best interest of their population, whether it's cigarettes or maybe even um, cheaper medicines. Mm. They could be sued by pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies over delivering um, cheap medicines that the pharmaceutical company makes, basically. Yeah, I guess one of the things that stands out about the ISDS clauses as well from that Philip Morris... Um, lawsuit against Australia is like, as you said, it stretched out for years. So you just think about how much money was spent fighting that one court case. And then if we have this clause in the um, woke TPP, <laughs> I don't know, I don't feel uncomfortable saying that, Oz, I'm sorry. CPT. Because it's not really woke? No, because okay. it's not really woke. Yeah. And the I, fake woke TPP. <laughs> we need but, a woke court. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, like we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars and it, it'll add up over time and, and it's kind of, um, you know, I was speaking to Matthew Rimmer who is from QUT, he's a, a professor in IP and innovation law and he was saying that, you know, the ISDS is definitely in there, it's watered down a little bit and the other thing he mentioned which was really interesting is that the architecture of this um, whole deal was like dictated by the US and the thing that Australia was getting by signing up to it was access to US markets. So he's kind of like what are we getting What's out the of point this? of this now? Yeah. We're yeah. kind of opening up our environment, our economy, like we're opening ourselves up to being like sued again and again by companies. Like what I wonder what we're getting out of the CPTPP. Yeah, well, Australia already has like a free trade deal with America of a certain nature, and there have been a lot of um, sort of papers looking at whether that has benefited the Australian economy over the years. And you know, the questions up in the end, like I guess what is really interesting about this is it seems such a direct rebuff to Trump's vision of the world, which is sort of closed off protectionism, and that's what it's trying to counter. But nevertheless, I think it's still a pretty open question about what on earth good it will do for Australia and the government will have to make that argument to Labor who they need to um, have on side to pass the law anyway. Yeah, it's interesting that like it's even though it's not as significant as the original TPP because the US isn't in it, it's still a pretty big deal and it's kind of weird to me that it's been negotiated in secret for the past few months and signed while no one in the government thought it was that interesting enough to like keep us updated about what was happening and now I'm like getting real cynical and I'm like, I don't think they orchestrated anything but like 
they might have been pretty happy that we're all a bit busy, you know, chasing down the Barnaby Joyce stuff while they're negotiating this enormous trade deal. But the trick for them is now, is that trade deal going to be implemented? Because it's one thing to sign it. The government now needs to pass legislation through parliament. And we know that the crossbenchers in the Senate are not that keen on free trade or trade deals. One Nation, for all their flaws, are pretty against trade deals, probably because they don't like foreigners. Um, And some of the countries involved in this trade deal, China, Vietnam, sorry, Chile, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, Singapore. It's the kind of countries that you think One Nation like does not want free trade uh, deals struck with, particularly when you think about like the influx of, of foreign workers that these sorts of deals lead to. Um, the Greens have come out really strongly against this. Labor's been more interesting. They support free trade in general, but they're concerned about some of the foreign worker clauses, basically, that would allow businesses to bring in workers from the countries that have signed the deal without looking for Australian workers first. So it could be one of the big political showdowns of 2018. I also like when I look at those countries that you mentioned, Canada, Japan, New Zealand, Mexico, Chile, it's kind of like anti-American alliance, but it's also slightly an anti-China alliance. It's like all these countries that are on the Pacific trying to group together, sort of, I don't know. It's also like my holiday wish list for for 2018, I I reckon, yeah. I'll take Vietnam, Mexico and Malaysia. Thank you. All right, I'll go New Zealand and Brunei. Rock and roll. (laughs) What would you go? Or have you been? Oh, have you been to all these places? Because <laughs> that's a, that's a, a really important thing about the CPTPP is which which of these countries signing the Cook deal do we want a holiday in? Visaless travel? <laughs> uh, Peru. Thank you. Deal. You're welcome. Um, so Madison's going to be sticking around uh, on the show. Later on, actually, she's going to be telling us about her recent trip to Syria, which I'm looking forward to hearing about, and refugee camp situation in Lebanon. But coming up next, we're going to be chatting to Guardian journalist Michael McGowan about Australia's gun lobby and its involvement in domestic politics. That's coming up after this tune by Empress Of. It's called Women is a Word. You're listening to Backchat on FBI 94.5, and that was Empress Of with the track Woman is a Word. And we're about to talk about gun control in Australia, so we'd love to have you weigh in. It's 0409-945-945 if you want to text. So, of course, each time there's a mass shooting in America, most recently that horrific school shooting in Florida, Australia gets praise heaped on it for its stringent gun laws. But are we getting a bit complacent? Australian gun lobby groups are increasingly throwing around political power, funding right-wing parties, including Pauline Hanson's One Nation, Today we're chatting to Michael McGowan, who works as a breaking news reporter at The Guardian, and he's been reporting on this for a little while. Hey, Michael. Hey, guys. How are you going? So, I was curious, is this something new in Australia that we're seeing these gun lobbies sort of wielding political power, lobbying and um, funding political parties directly? I don't think it's a new phenomenon for us to have a gun lobby. I think Australia's had a gun lobby for a really long time. I think maybe what we're seeing is a more organised... approach to lobbying from from gun groups and different types of industry or people involved in guns and gun manufacturing, weapons manufacturing, getting involved in that process. Um, So I did some reporting this week about uh, mostly the Queensland state election where thanks to um, donation disclosures being quite progressive, we know already who funded who last year. what were some of the biggest takeaways from that? So the the main thing was that there was a really big uh, third-party funding campaign, mostly funded, a, a, and people in Queensland, if there's 
anyone listening to FBI in Queensland <laughs> probably we got heaps of Queensland <laughs> listeners shout out to our loyal Queensland fans probably saw their put the major's last campaign right which is a campaign all about telling people to vote for minor parties right, right. with the aim of getting a minority government in Queensland um, and during the campaign there was a little bit of reporting about who was behind this group right and we knew a little bit about it but not a lot the the donation disclosures show though that Pretty much the group was entirely funded by uh, gun, gun groups wow. um, to the tune of about half a million dollars. and That's a significant amount for Australian state election, right? You think about it, like the money that goes into it. I think people think about donations and you maybe think about the US where they spend enormous amounts of money. Half a million dollars in a state election is very significant. Yeah. And it's important to note that, that the, the groups behind this funding campaign weren't saying, well, said that their money wasn't attached to any particular party, right? They weren't advocating for a specific party, but they were advocating for minor groups. And it just turns out that the the parties that benefited the most were the Qatar Australia Party, which receives a lot of money from gun groups, and One Nation, which receives some money from, from gun groups as well. But re- really interesting, I guess, about it is that the majority of the campaign was funded by a group called... Um, uh, Shooters Industry Foundation of Australia, which is basically a group of weapons manufacturers, importers. These are guys with really deep pockets who maybe in the past haven't been involved so much in that lobbying effort. And that's, I think, where we're seeing a change in um, the way gun groups are, are funding. Yeah. Yeah, I was curious about where the money was coming from. Beyond um, this outside money, is there an element of um, Australian gun law, gun control laws actually having set up this problem in a way? Because I think you mentioned in the article, um, gun owners here, for the most part, have to belong to a gun club. They have to pay fees to that gun club, and that also provides a base, lo- a base of money, which can be used politically. Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the things that, you know, we talk a lot about in Australia about our gun laws, how great they are and how satisfied we are with them. And we rub it in the US's faces Absolutely. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Every time there's a mass shooting, we like sort of pat ourselves on the back and say how great we are, right? One of the, I guess, unintended consequences of the Howard reforms was that to own a gun, you needed what's called a genuine reason, right? And one of those genuine reasons is membership of a gun club. A Interesting. Sporting shooters club, something like that, right? There's no restrictions on how much these clubs can charge for membership. And... Uh, a couple of years ago, Philip Alpers from the University of Sydney, who's an uh, expert on gun policy in Australia, went went through some of the financials of these groups and saw that, um, I think all are, but he, he looked at, I think, the seven largest uh, affiliates of the Sporting Shooters Association in Australia, which is sort of the big sporting shooters group, and found they had assets of, uh, I think, about $34 million, right? So they have very deep pockets. And some people would say that this is, yeah, a direct result of 1996. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, we, we saw as well during the, um, the end, tail end of the Tasmanian election um, that just happened last weekend, uh, the current Premier, the returning Premier, um, had sort of given a new policy to gun lobby members that they would be loosening some of around the edges of gun control in Tasmania. And he said that was only, um, you know, information that people interested in guns needed, which was an interesting position for him to take. Is this the type of thing we're starting to see? And this, is this like the first success the gun lobby has had? I think, well, I don't know about the first success because some people would argue that pretty much since 1996, there have been efforts to roll back 
some elements of that, right? And I guess it's been mixed. Um, mixed, mixed results with that. But I think Tasmania was really what members of the shooting lobby, and I don't have insight into what goes on in their brains, but <laughs> <laughs> would be this kind of success that they've been hoping for for a long time, right? Because once you have... because. Australian gun laws are made up by agreements by the states, right? Once you have one state getting out of step, that gives you like a wedge almost or a, an, in, an an entry into lobbying other states. Right, it's kind of like a, like a race to the bottom sort of thing. It's like, we did this in Tasmania, now why can't you just like do what Tasmania did? That's and- exactly right, yeah. Um, so I think Tasmania is potentially quite significant, especially because if you think about our whole like consciousness around gun laws in Australia goes back to 1996 in Port Arthur, Tasmania, which is where that horrible shooting happened. Mm, you think if there was one state, it would be Tasmania. Right, and it turns out that's not the case. No, interesting. One thing I've always found interesting in these debates about, like, gun laws in Australia versus the US, like, it does seem, you know, even with these issues that, that Michael's outlining, we're not quite, you know, the US level yet, but we do have a political party literally called the Shooters Party. They've exercised the balance of power in New South Wales Parliament for a very long time. And when the Labor last time Labor was in government, they tended to prefer working with the Shooters Party and the Christian Democrats over other, you know, over the Democrats, over the Greens, to the extent that they would, like, hand money, like, lots of money over to gun clubs and, and, and the shooting lobby, basically just to kind of, you know, get their votes on board with issues. The Shooters now, I think, have a member of the lower house in New South Wales Parliament, and the latest poll was like 50-50 between Coalition and Labor. It's not unfathomable we end up with a minority government in New South Wales at the next election, which is going to be March next year, so just in 12 months. The idea of like a shooter's MP holding the balance of power, um, it, it, it might sound ludicrous, but as we're talking about, it doesn't seem like it's beyond the realm of possibilities that they could be, you know, trying to exert some some political power over these sorts of issues. Yeah, that's totally right. And the shooter's party, I guess, is progressing in other states as well. They have members in Victoria. Yeah, right. Yeah. Interesting. They've just registered in, in Queensland as well. Okay, right, right. There you go. So we are seeing, I guess, a, a growing political movement yeah. from the shooting lobby. Well, it's a, I mean, it's getting to politics, but it's a successful model for them, right? Because there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the nationals hmm. uh, out in their heartlands. And you yeah, saw yeah. Like, the shooters targeted them pretty heavily. In yeah, the right. Few violations last but year. I want to I know, though, just we have to um, unfortunately finish up, but um, I want, was curious whether this is a, like based on public sentiment. What's the attitudes of Australians generally based on, um, you know, le- the latest polling towards gun control? Um, because, you know, Australia seems quite proud of gun control measures. Um, you know, it's one, it's sort of a characteristic of Australia that we have them. And is the shooting party and the shooting lobby sort of driving into wedge political issues um, as a tactic to get around public sentiment rather than being, un- you know, pushed by public sentiment, if that makes sense. I think there's, um, there's a sense that Australia's gun laws maybe are, um, or, or, or the shooting law would argue that Australia's gun laws lack common sense, right? Like, that's the, the perfect... Um, the way to describe it, if you if you don't like something, you say it's <laughs> of course right. So I, I think there's a there's a way around that. There's a way around, I guess, the general public sentiment of you know we um, we like our gun laws by saying well they're confusing and chaotic and um, it makes sense that if or it doesn't make sense, I guess, that you should have to renew your license after five years, stuff like that, right? There's an, there's a an in there, I suppose. So that unfortunately, um, we that's all we have time for on gun control in Australia. But you're going to stick around and endorse some good content with us? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Here we have roulette. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Madison. 
Hey, <laughs> thanks for coming back to endorse some good stuff. But I think uh, you've got a pretty interesting trip to tell us about. I feel like that's so narcissistic to come in and no, be like, we want to know. what is the most underappreciated piece of content this week? <laughs> My story. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, no, basically um, the story isn't out yet, but spent uh, last all of last week on the border of Lebanon and Syria um, in a place called the Beka Valley, um, which is home to many of the refugees who flooded across from Syria um, in the in the course of the Syrian war. Um, there are two million refugees in Syria, a country of four million people, um, and a lot of them live in the Beka. Um, and so I was interviewing a bunch of 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds um, in the lead-up to the seventh anniversary, which is on Thursday, um, just about what it was like to be a teenager growing up. They've basically spent their entire life in these in these camps. Um, and the whole situation is really, really um, fraught, I guess. So the refugees rent land off of, um, off of farmers. They, there's no real assistance going on there. Um, and there's a lot of, of abusive labour, I guess, people working for 2 $3 a day. Um, basically, someone told me, you know, Lebanon is built on cheap Syrian labour, um, which is hard to see, you know, 14-, 15-year-old kids um, working in those jobs. Yeah, for sure. And when can we expect that piece to come out? It's on Thursday. So Thursday is the 7th anniversary on the 15th of March. Okay, great. We'll watch out for it. And how about you, Michael? What have you got? Uh, mine is not that... Ex- that's very interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, one of my favourite writers for The Guardian is Bridget Delaney, who writes a weekly diary for us and sort of runs through her chaotic life, I guess. Uh, and this last week, I think she lost her laptop while travelling and I guess as any writer would know, losing the thing that is like your... Your baby. Your, your baby, your your muse, your like mind almost is pretty devastating and she wrote a really beautiful, heartbreaking, very funny piece about um, what it's like to, to lose your laptop. <laughs> These are probably like two really top-notch types of content. <laughs> so I'm going to do something like really bad and, well, bad good, I would say. So if you, I was really brain dead this week on Wednesday night and I watched Bad Neighbours 2. And it was actually so good. Oh, this is not like Oz's favourite film, and I had resisted watching it, but it was actually like quality and a you know great sort of rep, you know representation of intersectional feminism. Oz is back to endorse now. Has to run back into the studio. I also watched it this weekend. What are the chances? Great film, absolutely deserved an Oscar. Did not w- was robbed basically. Yeah. I thought. And Rose Byrne is like comedy's secret weapon she should be in every comedy I think oh this is Zac Efron yeah. Seth Rogen exactly ah uh, okay yeah, yeah. yeah can endorse the first one but it's the first one's great but imagine the first one with like this great feminist plot to it sorry if you already said that I was running into the studio so I wasn't paying attention <laughs> no no it's good to double down on that because that is you know a key um, yeah a key reason why you should watch it mm. So, you know, read about Syria, read about your laptop and then watch Bad Neighbours too, and you'll be like a well-rounded individual. So unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this weekend. Um, thanks to Madison and Michael for joining us. And also thanks to our producers, Amelia Zhao and Natalie Sevalovska. Um, Agenda is up next, but first, Young Fathers, in my view.